0: Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 19. John 19. If you're a guest with us or you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some Bibles provided in the seat back in front of you. And I'd encourage you to find that passage. The page number listed in the bulletin. As with every Sunday, this... Sunday is especially important that we look at our our text, look at the copy of God's Word. Hopefully that will become evident. John 19, we're going to be focusing on verses 16 to 37. John 19, verses 16 to 37. But to begin, I'm just going to Drop us off or pick us up where we dropped ourselves off last week. Just uh, verse 16. Start of verse 16. So, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. delivered him over to them to be crucified. Three to four hundred years before Christ's birth, the first heated swimming pool was dug outside the city walls of Rome. It was a gentrification project that would take decades in part because a significant ditch outlined the city for defensive purposes. But that particular ditch, in that particular location, had been littered for years with the carcasses of dead slaves. As with any hot piece of property, it doesn't start off that way. This particular location would become something like the uh, the Port Royal of Rome, the Beverly Hills. But the land was so cheap, not only because this was the dumping site for the hundreds of slaves who had no financial means of being provided a proper burial but also because of an adjoining piece of property called the Caesorium. The Caesorium was the dedicated execution place of slaves in the Roman Empire. It was a cottage industry. Just like we have waste management to come and pick up our trash on a regular basis, so also the Romans in their mind had to figure out some means of getting rid of the slave scum that would occasionally rise and revolt against them, thus instituting the Caesorium. I'm not trying to be overly provocative, I have a point, but Bear in mind that the testimonies of this particular locale to historians writing from that particular time and place said that it resembled an open-air meat market of human flesh. Vultures would be seen at that heated pool and in that luxurious location for decades. In fact, They would plant some of the most pungent flowers known in existence to cover up the stench that occupied that particular place. It was heinous. It was shameful. It was absolutely disgusting. Disgusting. But the Romans felt like it was the deterrent that they needed to keep the slave population in check. Crucifixion was the calling card of the Caesarian. It was the necessary evil to maintain power in a culture in which the slave-to-citizenship ratio was 3 to 1. We sometimes think, oh... It's always been upper class, middle class, lower class. First century Rome was 75% slave, 25% citizen. So they were always living in the fear that there could be some type of revolution, some type of uprising. So Rome adopted the method of crucifixion primarily for the execution of and warning for slaves and those who would revolt. In fact, it was reserved for only those kind of people. It was intended to be both painful and public. Hence the Caesarean. They put it on the outside of the walls of the city so that people would have to see it on their way in and out. Nothing says, do not rebel, like a bunch of hanging bodies on the entrance into the city, or as Rome would popularize in their conquering of the Mediterranean world, any city that would revolt, they would end up crucifying its leading citizens at the entrance and exit. But they would not do it in the, in the town square. As much as Rome had actually embraced crucifixion as a means of controlling the slave population, they still found the practice ultimately revolting. In fact, uh, they tried to even like convey in their writings that this particular form of execution and torture was not unique to them, but they inherited it from those more uh, barbarous nations like the Assyrians or the Persians. They didn't want to claim this as their own. In fact, It was so disgusting, so degrading, that it would no more be mentioned in their everyday writings than a newspaper would mention someone going to the bathroom. To them, it was just a public removal of the scum of society. And in our egalitarian age, where all men are created equal, that seems strange, but you can thank Christianity for that sentiment. For millennia, most people have viewed themselves as better than others and practiced it as such. And so crucifixion would only be reserved for the slaves. It was the most degrading, humiliating way to die in the ancient world. And in fact, it was so disgusting that it's hard to actually find accounts, like written accounts, of any crucifixion because they were so ashamed of it. And yet, there is one that actually has four different accounts. This crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth the one that we've been studying of late, is in fact one of the greatest historical insights into the shame of crucifixion known in the historical world. And This is what we find ourselves studying today. I'm recounting these first century views of crucifixion because they stand at odds with our own. The scandal, the shock, the the incredulity of crucifixion and this whole Christian claim that its king would be crucified providing salvation has lost its shock value. We so easily, I do it too, we so easily sing of the cross, the destined day, the stricken, the smitten, the afflicted one. Like, it, it, it's lost, it, it's, it's actual, like, disgustingness, it's vileness. And with it, some are concerned that it may have even lost its power. It was the um, renowned Missionary Alliance pastor, A.W. Tozer, who, several decades ago, noted that the cross of Christ is the most revolutionary thing to ever appear among men. Because in Roman times, it was absolutely disgusting and scandalous and something that polite company didn't want to talk about, and yet it was the very thing that would capture the attention of the Apostle Paul and from him end up converting millions, 300 years later converting an empire. Like that's quite a shift. And it was in the offense itself that it became so outstanding. Like, that's what was so weird about the Christian message. It's King comes in such a way that he's crucified, and we're supposed to worship him and we're supposed to live for him. Sposer says the cross, the message of the cross. Did all of this and continue to do so as long as it was permitted to remain what it had been originally, a cross. Its power departed when it was changed from a thing of death to a thing of beauty, when when, when men made it a symbol, hung it around their necks as an ornament. Then it became at best a weak emblem. As such, it is revered today by millions who know absolutely nothing about its power. And that's my fear for us today. That there, that there may be some among us who, who think that they are aware of the cross, that, it, that, that revere the cross, but may actually know nothing of its power. Some of you, likely, have never known the power of the cross. Some may have simply forgotten. So before we revel in its power, we need to recognize this lowest instrument of torture, this most painful of deaths, as the crowning achievement of God's saving. Now here's what we need to do to, to understand and embrace the message that's before us today. You need to recall something that we've been focusing on the last few weeks together that God chose to shine in the shameful death of His Son. That's what John's been getting at through the whole Gospel. God will shine, as the Rescuer and Redeemer always promised, He will shine as such in the shameful death of His Son. This would be the the climactic expression of His redemption. And I want you to to, to get just a little more background before we dive in. I know I'm going deep, but you build deep to build up. (laughs) Hang with me. Jews and Gentiles and modern skeptics reject this notion that God would shine in a shameful cross. It just doesn't make any sense. Let's just let's call a spade a spade. Let's acknowledge the paradoxical nature of what many of us profess. How in the world would we say that there was a man who was truly God and the way that he showed that off was through dying The most humiliating death known in the first century. I mean, let's wear your historical hat for a moment. You understand that that ancient Rome, ancient civilizations, forget Rome, like they had no problem imagining a guy becoming God. I think sometimes we act like the idea of uh, somebody who's divine and human, like something new or creative. That's been around for a really long time. You you understand that in Egyptian culture, like the greatest pharaohs were revered as gods. Why? Because they were powerful. They were strong. They they conquered empires. And as such, they were seen as as divine because gods are strong. It wasn't just the pharaohs. uh, The Greeks, we mentioned this last week, spoke of a hero god named Heracles, or the Romans called him Hercules. And this mythical figure was strong, and he was invincible. And even upon his death, it is said that when he was laid upon the funeral pyre, they saw his spirit ascend into the heavens, thereby recognizing him or confirming him as deity. But who gets recognized as deity? The strong one, the guy who slays the monsters, the one who doles out the punishments. It wasn't just the Romans, I mean the Greeks, but it was also the Romans with the founding uh, father of their city, Romulus. The same thing was considered about him because of his great ability to build, because of his wise engineering, because of his prominence, he too was considered to be or to take on divinity and then, of course, we recognize those chief historical figures, Julius Caesar and his adopted son, Augustus Caesar. They would be hailed as lords. Why? Because they conquered the world. So who gets God's status in the normal human mind? The strong one. And yet, Christianity says that the climactic expression of Jesus' God status is not inflicting pain on his enemies, but receiving it. Not in nailing his enemies to a cross, but being nailed to one. Like, this is weird. This is crazy. And to the Jewish mind, this was blasphemous it's one thing to be polytheistic and believe that any really strong guy could ultimately ascend to, to godlike status, but I tell you, friends, the Jews believed in something totally different. They believed that their God was the one true God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the most high God, the, the Lord of the armies. And for that God, To show up in human form and die the death of a slave is scandalous. If you readily believe this message, either the Holy Spirit has done an amazing work in your life or you're not thinking properly. Paul acknowledges this dilemma. Do you remember? In 1 Corinthians, this is the way that he says it. The word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness. The Greek word moros, it is moronic to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to acknowledge, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. So what John is doing here is he's countering these cultural expectations of a conquering deity in human flesh by actually showing that that God's Son conquered in a crucifixion. It seems weird. It seems crazy. But I want you to understand, like, I'm, I'm preaching the book of John, but don't worry, I'll get to the text. Jesus has already been demonstrated to be the powerful son of God. It wasn't as if he was just in slave status the entire time. Do you remember the entire first half of the book? I mean, here's the guy that turns water into wine. He heals a lame man. He heals someone of congenital blindness. He takes a basket of food and turns it into enough to feed thousands. He raises a man from the dead. I mean, indeed, Jesus had some power. It was divine power. John has established his authority through 12 chapters, and yet his preoccupation, like his closing argument, isn't any like flex on Jesus' part of miraculous ability. But he spends the remainder of the book focusing on his death. And then a couple chapters on his resurrection. For John, this is supposed to seal the deal. Because Jesus has said he would be glorified in his death. He he planned for it. He said his hour had not yet come. He said that he would be glorified when he was lifted up, and he indicated that it was his death. He called it. And that also conformed to this weird thing in the Old Testament. These, These strange, incongruent promises that there would be a conquering king who would come, there would be this one who would proverbially like, kick butt, take names, conquer the world. And yet there was this stuff like interjected in there about the king, like Isaiah 53, that he would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted, cursed by God. Or there would be this stuff like what we read in Psalm 22, like he's going to suffer and he's going to have nails driven through his, his appendages. Or like in Zechariah, This this coming Messiah would come, but he would be pierced with a spear and everybody would see it. Like, they didn't know how to bring that together. But John, because of the teaching of Jesus, sees it. He knows that this wasn't some cosmic accident, but this actually would be the way that God would make his power known to the world. And in this particular text, he is laying out an argument for all of us that this crucifixion happened according to the divine counsel of God. This is God's rescue plan, as verified by these four different events that take place as Jesus is dying on the cross. What we have here today for you note takers are some check boxes. You could draw little boxes in your notes. These are verifications. Verifications that God's rescue plan was accomplished in the crucifixion of the Son. These are verifications that God's rescue plan was accomplished in the crucifixion of the Son. It's not just accomplished, but it was actually this shameful, despicable crucifixion that accomplished the plan. I won't give them to you ahead of time because they won't make sense. But I did at least start them with the same letter for you. So be listening out for the letter C, and I'm going to say this: um, I need some water, big time. Uh, Dottie, will you bring me that uh, bottle there, please? Sorry, guys. Uh, you think I would have had this figured out? But so four verifications. The first one is what I will call the communication of his kingship. The communication of his kingship verified that the crucifixion of the Son was the completion of God's rescue plan. Look at the second half of verse 16 as we make our way into verse 18. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So notice that the crucifixion now is taking place, and there's not much description of the physical pains of crucifixion, because again, it was just not the type of thing that you discussed in polite company. But just as journalists today don't describe the details of every death by electric chair or Back in the day, death by firing squad. You don't have to chronicle every movement. You get the idea. So also, John communicates uh, this crucifixion. He says, so they crucified him. The elements of it are seen here. Jesus has to do the same stuff that everybody else who was crucified would do. There would be a preemptive flogging, by the way, for Jesus. This was flogging number two. The first one was just to roughen him up, to make the crowd actually feel sorry for him. Didn't work. So before anybody would die, they would do the ultimate scourging with the cat of nine tails, ripping someone literally to pieces, and they needed that to actually exacerbate the crucifixion process, otherwise it would last for days. They wanted it to last a long time so that people could see them writhing in pain and it could make its message, but they didn't want it to last too long because they had so many that they were trying to crucify, they didn't want to keep cutting down trees. So Jesus would have already received that second flogging, and it says here that he carries his cross to the destination. Like, and this is its own humiliation. You have to bring with you your own instrument of torture. Now, it isn't the cross that we normally think of with the vertical beam. It was just the cross bar. That's what they would carry. It was heavy and it was tough. And John emphasizes here that, that Jesus is bearing this alone. Jesus Here is determined to take on this punishment. In fact, you know, Mark mentions that Simon of Cyrene at one point is conscripted to help Jesus carry the cross the remainder of the way, but John doesn't even mention that here because it isn't actually in his purview to emphasize the weakness of Jesus. What he is trying to emphasize is the decisiveness of Jesus. He's the one carrying the cross, and he gets no special favors. He's also surrounded by two other guys who the other gospels record are also being crucified for terrorism or revolution. And it says that he goes to the place of the skull. The, uh, the Greek word, you'll like this, is cranion, from which we get the term cranium. And what a, the, the scene is deathly. It's, it's already ominous. It's already rather disgusting. But John doesn't focus on any of those things. What he focuses on is this communique, this, uh, this title, this placard. That seems to be the object of his interest. Notice it. He says in verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now you remember that was the wrestling match last week. Pilate didn't want Jesus crucified. The Jews didn't want him charged with being the king. And now they both lose and God wins because Pilate ends up having to crucify him. But to get back at the Jews, he says, okay, this guy will forever be known as the one who was the king of the Jews. I'm going to show them. Like, this is their king. This is their ruler. This is their authority. We're going to make a statement. And in fact, he doesn't just make any statement. The text actually goes on to say that it was a very public one. Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, a cessorium, if you will. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. You see what he's doing here? Like, Pilate isn't just trying to communicate this to the Jews that would have just been Aramaic Hebrew. He puts it in Latin so that all the Roman officials coming in and out of Jerusalem would have known. And he puts it in Greek, which was the common language of the people of the day. Like He's making it known to the world. Think about that. He's making it known to the world that this is the king promised in the, in the Jewish Old Testament in their scriptures. Pilate is trying to make a statement about his own power and authority as a Roman, but ironically is affirming the plan of God from the very beginning to send his son as a crucified king. The point that I'm conveying to you this morning is that, like, this was all part of the plan. Like, John sees it that way. He's like, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? I was there, and the official charge that forever stands on public record is that this crucified one was the king of the Jews, this Jesus of Nazareth. It's a verification. It's a checkbox. Like, God is providentially here making it known. How can this happen? If the Messiah is being executed as a a common criminal, as a revolutionary, and John's answer is unambiguous, it is precisely through execution That this king is being made known to the world. So, this official communique conveys Jesus accomplishing God's plan in his crucifixion. But we need to move quickly. This was only one verification, the communique. There's another. We could call this the casting of lots there's another confirmation that this was the way that God accomplished his plan through the crucifixion of his son. And it's in this incident that many of you would know as the casting of lots. Look at verses 23 to 27. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, let's pause for a second. Remember of all the stuff that we would like to double click on, like I'd love to know more about that. Why is it that John thinks it's so important for us to know what they did with his clothes? Like of all the questions running through my mind, if I'm thinking that the son of God is crucified, What they do with his belt and hat and coat is not on my top ten list. And yet John chooses to bring that out. He thinks that this is something important. And this was a normal thing that happened in crucifixion. I mean, the guy's going to die. He's going to lose his articles of clothing anyway. And I know for us that doesn't seem like a big deal. But in a society like that where consumer goods such as material and clothing could also be used as a form of currency... Like taking someone's clothes was basically like just taking the money out of their wallet before you throw it away. So it says there's four soldiers, they divide up his stuff. I'm assuming that there's a belt and there's a coat and there's a shawl of some kind. Like whatever his stuff is, they split up part of it. But John is also quick to let us know that there was another part of his garment that they didn't want to tear, they didn't want to divide up. They kept it in one piece, and it was his tunic. Historical detail. The tunic was that which was worn closest to the skin. It was an undergarment of types. And as we normally tend to think of the things we put on the outside as the most valuable, they were a little more pragmatic, and they thought whatever you put on the closest to your body should be the most valuable. And the finest tunics of that particular time would actually be sewn all of one piece. Now, it's not like Jesus had a side hustle. Somebody obviously had provided this nice piece of clothing for him, and yet in the providence of God, he was given this very valuable piece of clothing that they refused to tear into pieces, and now they end up gambling on it to see who gets it, casting lots. It's like drawing a name out of a hat or throwing a dice and calling a number. I mean, it was just their way of saying, all right, who gets this? And again, I'm thinking like, okay, John, thanks for the detail, but I don't see where this is relevant. But for John, it is extraordinarily relevant. Look at the second half of verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This comes from that passage read to us earlier in Psalm 22. Like it said there that this, this messianic figure, this David-like guy was going to suffer in an unparalleled way. We looked at this several weeks ago in Psalms. He's going to suffer in an unparalleled way, and in fact, it's going to be such a unique suffering that this guy's kingship is going to be told to the entire world and for generations. That's what Psalm 22 says. Now, here's what the Jewish people are thinking. God promised to work through this like David-like guy who was going to come and rule the world But David failed, so therefore they kept looking for another guy like David. They were looking for somebody else who would kind of fit the mold, and they know that what happened in Psalm 22, all that suffering, never happened with David. I mean, he had some hard times, but he never got nailed to a tree. He never had his clothes taken from him and gambled upon. They were looking for somebody who would actually fulfill like the full Davidic prototype. And John here is saying, like, this event proves it. This was the guy. This is what it says in Psalm 22. I mean, how did they know, like a thousand years before this happened, that there would be garments divided up and one garment in particular that would be gambled over? This is crazy. And John's like, Do you see it? This is that Davidic sufferer we were looking for. Like they're doing the same thing to him that was never done to David. So the communique or the communication of this title isn't the only thing confirming the crucifixion as being God's accomplished rescue plan. But this casting of the lots over his clothes is doing the same thing. And in this, John bakes in something. He he wedges something in that he wants you to see. It's interesting that if you're looking at the original and it comes across in our ESV in verse 25, the events of verse 25 to 27 are connected to this casting of lots over Jesus' clothes. Notice what it says. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her into his home. It's fascinating to me that John connects this, because it's not actually a fulfilled prophecy, but he wants to interrupt his argument long enough for you to see something. He's saying that when Jesus was at the height of his humiliation, here he is, a grown man, stark naked on a tree, And his mother is standing there in front of him with his aunt and a couple other ladies. At the time when he would have been the most prone to think about himself and his own dignity and his own well being, the time when he would be most tempted to think about his own shame in that particular instance, the text actually says, But he saw his mother and he was concerned for her well being. And so he practically commends her future care to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Uh, Friends, I think that we see something really practical here that deserves another sermon for another day. But when Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me, be willing to forsake your family, he doesn't mean forsake your obligations to your elderly parents. Here he is modeling love and care in this moment. John wants you to see it. Like how commendable. This isn't just the Jesus who's fulfilling all prophecy, but this is the one who even cares for those most intimate relations and ensures their well-being for time to come. You'd say, well, why doesn't Jesus' brothers take care of them? Well, Jesus' brothers didn't believe they weren't there at the crucifixion. He was not going to entrust his mother to the care of brothers who thought that Jesus was the ultimate loser. Instead, he entrusts them to John, who actually had the resources to care for her. And yet, the greater point here is still the same. Both through the communication and the casting of the lots, we're checking off two boxes here that this was indeed the plan of God. It wasn't just some kind of cosmic accident. But there's a third checkbox that John is going to note for us, and that is in verses 28 to 30. We'll call this one the cry of thirst the cry of thirst. It also verified the crucifixion of the Son as the completion of God's rescue plan. Now, we understand that um, in every story there's two sides. And even though John is emphasizing Jesus' determination to get this done, even though John is showing Jesus as the one who steps into the plan of God, he is careful not to present the story in such a way that Jesus was somehow superhuman and over and above human suffering. He records details that not only like, indicate his divinity, but also his full and true humanity. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Once again, John brings out another one of those odd aspects in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah, not just being glorious, but being gritty like he would be truly human he would enter into real human suffering this davidic king that they were expecting was going to be powerful he was going to be strong but he would be vulnerable obviously he would be open to attack he would be open to critique jesus here is just expressing his human need i mean you know what it's like to like try to work out for an hour and want to drink of water I dare say that that most of you in the room, if you worked out for an hour, wouldn't drink multiple draughts of water. And yet, Jesus has gone hours without any form of nourishment. He's been losing bodily fluids on account of the blood running off his back and from his pierced feet and hands. And here he is Squirming in the midday sun, fighting for every ounce of his life, it just kind of makes sense that he would say, as a real human being, I thirst. And John wedges in this little comment to fulfill the scriptures. Even this little comment fulfilled the scriptures. Like, what's the big deal about that? Where did that come from? What is being confirmed here? Well, again, you go to Psalm 69, and it's about this Davidic individual who suffered in some extraordinary ways. And one of the interesting things about that Davidic individual is that he would cry out at one point for water, and and listen to this part. Anybody can say, I thirst. You can make that happen. But this next part, you can't make this stuff up. John's stunned by it. The second half of what happens in Psalm 69 is that there's sour wine, and that Davidic individual is forced to drink sour wine by his enemies. Now, that's oddly specific, friends. There's multiple kinds of wine in the Old Testament. This particular one was like the cheap stuff that the soldiers carried around in their little flasks. It's not that alcoholic because there's not distillation yet. They can't compound the effects of the alcohol, but it's still just a cheap drink. They have it available, it says, in a jar just sitting there beside it. And for some reason, they decide to actually feed him or nurse him with this sour wine. And you've got to be thinking like, oh, that's really nice of those guys. It's actually not nice of the guys They wanted to keep this thing going, and so if they could actually hydrate him in some way, shape, or fashion, they could prolong the festivities. So even in their meanness, they're fulfilling a prophecy that actually said there'd be this Davidic-type individual who's going to cry out, I thirst, and anybody could cry out, I thirst, but David never had a time where his enemies gave him sour wine to drink. Doesn't happen. And yet it happens with Jesus. And that is why John notes the next words. Jesus cries out like he's realizing at this point that he has fulfilled all that is required of him. He has gone the distance. He is crossing the finish line. And he cries out, it is finished. I love that Greek word. It's one word. In our translation, it's three. The die. It was the thing that they would normally put at the bottom of a receipt, our equivalent of paid in full. Jesus is crying out, receipt paid, everything satisfied, according to the plan of God. Like, I've done what I needed to do. And we'll dwell on this more in a moment, but I just want you to understand that even this crying out of thirst and this connected comment is showing another box being checked That the Son of God accomplished God's plan for salvation through his crucifixion. That's three boxes. This is crazy. And it ain't over. There's one more, or two more. It's actually two sides of the same coin. I'm going to call this one, for your sakes, uh, the outcome. No, let's call it the outcomes of his intentional death. Here's your last box. The outcomes of his intentional death. Two things are going to happen here. And I need you to notice something in your text. This is why I was so keen on everybody like looking at a Bible. It would be easy for us, especially those of us who have who've been in church before or maybe heard a John 19 sermon, to be like, Mic drop, it is finished. Like, that's it. Oh, amazing. Let's sing a song and go home. But, but John, John's not done. John, he's got more to say. The, the Spirit-inspired author gives us a few details that I think that we all need to grasp uh, very well. Notice this is what's pretty amazing. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus willingly stepped into death. He bows his head as a visual sign for all around him that he's done. He has said it out loud, and then he does it in his spirit. It says he gives up his spirit, he breathes out his last. But in willingly dying, because that was the point of crucifixion. You couldn't kill yourself. The point was, you died when they wanted you to. People wanted to die, but the fact that you were nailed to that crossbeam meant that you couldn't do anything about it. For those of you who aren't anatomically aware, crucifixion is actually not death by blood loss, but death by suffocation. Because like the weight of the body is constantly being pushed down on with the feet so that you can like, sit up enough to gasp for air. So you're pushing on this painful piece, and you like, want to just give up and let go, but your bodily impulse, I mean this was a maniacal invention, is going to be to breathe. People could commit suicide a variety of ways, but you can't do it by holding your breath. The body will always fight to breathe. Yeah, notice what Jesus does. He's not on the Roman timetable. He's on his own timetable. He gives up his life. He says, no man takes my life. I lay it down willingly. And so he lays down his life, and there's some outcomes of this. Notice it. There's going to be two things that happen, and John's going to note it. And like he wants you to see this because another checkbox is about to get checked, even though Jesus is already dead. What is it? Notice verse 31. We'll read the whole little section. and This will finish us out. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, Paul's there for a moment. Like, John has given us a ton of historical information here, he's, he's like wanting you to know all the details and follow it for a second. It's the day of preparation, which means it's the day before Passover. Just as like it's Christmas, you know, like if Christmas falls on a Sunday, not only are stores closed, but they're doubly closed. You know, you just know that there's no target run on Christmas day on a Sunday. Uh, You're not going to the grocery store. You get your stuff done ahead of time because you know it's a national holiday that people actually enforce, and there's not going to be anything open, except for Walgreens. But in that culture, you didn't just prepare yourself logistically, you prepared yourself ritually, not just for Passover, which happened every week, but when it was the Passover that happened over the Feast of Tabernacles and unleavened bread, like you, like Ultra made sure that you had all of your ritual stuff in order. So John is letting us know hey, something's about to happen that's going to enable Jesus to die in a few hours as opposed to a few days. And it's Passover because the Jews didn't want the ritual defilement of somebody hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy said that this was something that actually caused, to use our modern term, bad spiritual vibes. And they're like, we don't want any piece of that. And Pilate, for some reason, is actually kind enough here to acquiesce with their request. So the Jews go to Pilate and say, hey, can you break these guys' legs? It's called crucifragum. It's when they would take like actually like a heavy lead pipe equivalent. <laughs> it's a heavy metal piece and they would, it was normal to crush their legs because this thing would just keep going and going and like, again, they had to rotate the customer. And so this was a normal practice. The typical way of speeding the thing up is like, okay, break the guy's legs. He can't push up anymore. He's going to suffocate. We'll let him die. And John is saying some interesting stuff is happening because Jesus gave up his life willingly ahead of time. There's a chain of events that's taking place. Step number one in this chain of events, they don't break his legs. Note that. Step number two, a guy comes along because he doesn't get the pleasure of breaking his legs and instead sadistically takes a spear and rams it into his side causing blood and some other type of fluid to come out. Now, I'm thinking like, okay, thanks for the details. Good to know. I'm glad that you know he he didn't break any bones. I'm glad to know this gratuitous detail about his spear being thrust in his side. But can you follow the text for a second? Because I want you to see something. John is really excited about this. In fact, John is more excited about this than he is the statement, it is finished. Look at your Bible. This is mind-blowing. It's only after this point that John says in verse 35... He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that y'all also may believe. Now, do you notice what John is doing? John is doing something here that he hasn't done the entire book. Like in 2031, at the very end of the book, he's going to say, hey guys, I've told you all this stuff. Here's why I'm writing. I'm writing so that you all will believe that Jesus is the son of God. But like here, he, like, he shows his hand ahead of time because he's so excited about this particular prophecy. And in fact, he, he vouchsafes uh, for it three times. He says, I'm an eyewitness. I saw it with my own eyes. And I, I promise, I know that I saw it. And what I'm telling you is true. It's like, I'm telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Like he is He is affirming that this is a really big deal. He wants everybody to know that he knows that these two things actually happen. And he's saying, in light of that, I'm hoping that y'all believe, that y'all trust in him. And I'm thinking, if I had like my one card to play for an evangelistic appeal, I don't know that it would be random facts about broken bones and spears and sides. And yet John finally gets back around to it and tells us why this matters so much, why he's so excited. Do You see it there? He goes on to say, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Do You see what's going on here? John sees in these final two acts after Jesus is already dead, further confirmation that this was God's plan. One, his bones wouldn't be broken. You say, where is that? in all the descriptions of the Passover lamb. It's Passover. And the Passover lamb would be like skinned and mangled and eaten and consumed and discarded, but his bones wouldn't be broken. It made it really clear, you do not break the bones of the Passover lamb. Why? I have no idea beyond the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Here's your Passover lamb. Because he gave up his life ahead of time. But like The normal process of his bones being broken didn't happen. This is amazing to John. And then the second thing that he points out is that there was a spear driven in his side. That comes from Zechariah chapter 12 where the prophetic figure who's going to bring about this great salvation and victory is said to oddly be run through with a spear and all the people would see it. And as you go on reading... Note this, at the beginning of chapter 13, it says that from that, there would be a fountain opened up for the cleansing of the impurities of God's people. They were always struggling. They were like, okay, we've got the strong Messiah, mighty God-like figure coming to rule, but there's going to be a, a, a spear in his side? And John's like, there was a spear in his side. I saw it. It's the truth. You need to believe this thing. This was God's plan. Like, I know the cross sounds crazy. I know it seems disgusting. But like God sent His Son to the lowest of the low, He suffered the worst of all possible deaths to take on the punishment that you and I deserve. Believe in this. Trust in this. Look to this for your salvation. God says, this verified. It's true. It's real. It almost seems too particular to be true. You know, it's one thing to say that uh, the Texas Rangers would win the World Series. They'd never done it. They did it. Of course. It's another thing to say that the Texas Rangers would win the World Series four games to one. Like, Whoa. Like, if somebody called that ahead of time, they'd be a rich dude. I mean, like, it's outside the realm of possibility, though. Like, it's just, okay, nobody's calling this. I mean, you're not even guessing. It's outside the realm of possibility. To predict hundreds of years before baseball was invented, that a team named the Rangers would win an event called the World Series four games to one by means of an RBI single in the seventh inning. Like, that's impossible. There's no way. That's not happening. You can't do that. It's one thing to say that God's Messiah would come and save the world. It's another thing to say that God's Messiah would come to save the world through suffering, like a struggle. It is totally outside the realm of possibility to predict hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented to say that the Messiah would come and save the world through death on a cross during Passover, while not having any of his bones broken, having a spear thrust through his side, being nursed with sour wine, having his tunic gambled over and the rest of his clothes evenly distributed, distributed all under the title "The King of the Jews." That doesn't happen. But it did. It happened. He called it. Like from the very beginning, like they were like pointing out, like this is the one. This is the salvation of God. Believe in this. Trust in this. It checks every box you could possibly imagine. And as John is writing, it just like stacks up for him. And he said, would you believe it too? Would you trust in this? Would you receive this rescue? Would you bow to this ruler? What do you do with this? I think it's pretty simple. I feel like this is like my application to every sermon in the book of John. So I'm going to warn you, it's not very creative, but repetition's the mother of all learning. What do you do with it? First, you receive it. You you have to receive this. You can't reject this. You must receive it. You must apply it. You must believe in it. Let me say it this way. Another R word. You must rely upon it. Like, You couldn't pay for it. He paid for it. He did it. God created the world perfect and good. Our first parents rebelled against him going their own way. And guess what? It messed us all up. We got the bad DNA. We rebel too. We're in Adam. We needed somebody to fix that because the wages of sin, the price for that is the, the righteous wrath of God. And being finite creatures, offending a holy God, it takes an eternity to pay that off. So we needed somebody to come and fix that for us. We needed some type of of, of rescue act from the outside because otherwise we would just be paying for it forever. And we know, please stay with me, we know we need that. We know we need rescue. I don't care who you are here today, you know you need a rescuer. Back in the day, we used to call it guilt. We felt guilty. We felt like, we had done something wrong. There had been moral offense. We knew that that needed to be paid for. There was some kind of dread, like people didn't want to die because they didn't want to face their maker knowing that they had rebelled against him. And yet now that has been psychologized away. We don't have guilt anymore. We have anxiety. Now we have this this overwhelming sense of dread. We're like, something's off. I'm not meeting a standard. I don't know if I'm living up to like my full potential. I don't, I don't know if I'm like, like meeting the mark that's been invisibly set for me. I don't care what you call it. Guilt, anxiety, dread, but we know that it's off. Something's off. And God said, I'm going to fix it. I'm, I'm going to fix it by sending one to represent you, to obey for you where you couldn't obey to, to fully absorb the righteous wrath of God in himself through his shameful death on the cross. And then to rise again from the dead to show that God had received the payment. He'd be vindicated. It wasn't just some shameful act into oblivion, but it was actually something that God rewarded and God would make this one like higher than all the rest. He would say, hey, here's your not only rescuer, here's your ruler. Follow this one. Trust in him. Get behind him. Forget Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus or Caligula, whoever may have been coming up next. What you really need is someone who has satisfied the payment with God and provided a way forward, still ruling, living, reigning, and returning. That is the good news. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You receive it. You rely on it. You count it to be true of yourself. You trust in Him Alone. Can I read to you a a statement from an old dead guy? He's smart. He's godly. This is Flavel again. He says, did Christ finish the work with his own hand? How dangerous and dishonorable a thing is it to join anything of our own righteousness to the righteousness of Christ? It is not I and my God. I and my Christ did this. He will be all or none of your justification, of your rightness with God. You hear what he's saying? He he, he adds one more statement. He says, We would fain add our penny to make up Christ's sum. We're like, we'd love to contribute. We'd say, Okay, well, Jesus paid most of it. I'm going to contribute a little bit too. You know, like he picks up the bill, I'll get the tip. And that's what religion tells you. Can I warn you of that? That's what religion tells you. Like, okay, some of you could be here today and be like, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's, man, he did a lot there. Now I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do some church stuff. I'm going to do some moral stuff. I'm going to do some philanthropy stuff. You know, like, I'm going to contribute. Like, we like to contribute. And this is what Flavel says. We would fain add our penny to make up Christ's sum, But if you would have it so, have nothing to do with Christ. You and your penny must perish together. It was God's plan to take care of this thing on his own, and the only thing that connects you to it is the willingness that you can't take care of it on your own. You need to receive it. Say, well, Justin, I'm covered. I've I've received it. Well, here's, here's my admonition to you, brothers and sisters. Remember it. Please, please, please remember it. Keep believing that it's paid for, that it's finished. I came across a story this week of some Roman Catholic guys on Monday, Thursday, in the Philippines several years ago, who were who were beating themselves with whips and like physically, like they were causing themselves to bleed. I mean, there's pictures of this thing, everything. And what, they, obviously, what they're doing is that like they're they're beating themselves up like, like trying to suffer for Jesus somehow like complete his sufferings. Like they're trying to they're trying to pay for it in some way and yet friends even though I don't think anyone in this room would actually inflict phys- physical pain on themselves to somehow finish off the cost of what Jesus has paid. Do we not when we're struggling with our own sin t- sometimes tend to like self-inflict wounds psychologically emotionally like we just feel like we should tell ourselves like how bad we really are and like how tough things really are and this is why i'm suffering in this way like we start justifying all these negative things in our life as like well yeah i deserve that one yep uh, yep shouldn't have let that happen yeah i understand that god's yeah, probably a little frustrated over that or we go proactive we're like you know what I'm going to set a really disciplined regimen, and I'm not going to do this or that or this or that, and I'm going to show God how much I really love him. Now if you're doing that out of a heart of gratitude, that's one thing. If you're doing it out of a heart of guilt, that's another. It is finished. It is paid in full. It is done. There, there is nothing left. Flavell again, and we finish. How sweet a relief is this to us? that believe in him against all the defects and imperfections of all the works of God that are imperfect duties in us. We know what we do is lame, like our best efforts are like half-hearted. Sometimes like we inject ourselves into the situation, like, of course, like we fall short. Of course, we struggle. That we cannot perfectly obey or fulfill one command of the law, yet is the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us who believe. Christ's complete obedience being imputed to us makes us complete without fault before God. Friends, it is all good. Remember that. Remember that. Don't let the guilt and the anxiety that is characteristic of the sinner in rebellion against God mark you in your daily existence. The gospel writers called this good news. This accomplished fact, you're rejoicing over that. There should be a general disposition of relief. And all I will say is we just have to keep reminding ourselves of this through the Word, read in a Gospel-centered fashion, looking to Jesus. Prayer, when we feel those weaknesses and struggles to God, giving it to Him, those anxieties. And then, lastly, and I did not set this up, God is in of the calendar. Communion. You know, communion is like the tangible reminder that it's paid for. You're in the club. The body was broken for you. The blood was shed for you. Ingest it. And guess what? There's other people affirming that because nobody's slapping a cup out of your hand. Now, if we thought somebody was partaking unworthily, guess what? We talk to them. But overall, communion is supposed to be this confirming time for us where it's like, it's good. It's good. And I'm not just telling myself through my own personal Bible reading and prayer. I'm being reminded through the family of God coming together at the table with me and saying, this community is what God hath wrought. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what I'm a part of. I don't want to gild anybody into communion. I want to grace you. This is grace, friends. Like Be reminded. It's, a, it's God's Reminder system that it is finished. It is paid for. This was God's plan from the very beginning. So let us remember that in closing. Through our song, through our celebration of communion tonight, and if this is something that you question in your own mind, you don't know if you're in this this rescue that Christ has accomplished through the cross, would you talk to me or someone around you before you leave? He want you to receive the saving plan of God accomplished in the crucifixion of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is one man's best attempt to preach Christ and Him crucified. And uh, I realize that humanly speaking, as Paul acknowledges, or this is weak, impressive words but through those words you have rescued millions and i pray that you do it again today would bring some who are on the religious side of things or the rebellious side of things into the receiving the gift of salvation through christ alone side of things save And remind us all who are already in Christ that it is finished, it is paid for, it is satisfied. Our sanctification, our growth, our good works, they're get-tos, not got-tos. You've done it all. So continue to affirm us as we sing these words of reminder to one another and as we see and participate in them tonight in communion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.